Shalom, and thank you for listening to the weekly teaching from Nachamu Ami. It's our honor that you've chosen to participate virtually, and we hope that this lesson will be an inspiration in your daily walk. Don't miss a single teaching. Be sure to download the Nachamu Ami app by visiting our website at www.makeandmessianic.com and clicking the Download the App button in the top left corner. Enjoy the message. All right, so Shabbat Shalom. I've called, I've called this, uh, this message Occupying Your Space. The definition of humility. So everybody knows the story of Korah. Guy gets a little bit of a big head, steps out of line, challenges, and uh, actually gets to go to his own funeral. So not, not a very good thing. So everybody's heard this story, but I thought I might try to put a little bit of a twist on it. So, kind of imagine, if you will, Hollywood putting this thing on, what it might look like. So first it, you know, might start out with, Hello everyone, I'm Kermit the Frog. (laughs) Stay tuned for the feature presentation. (laughs) And then, so let's imagine Cora, you know, he's kind of stewing because things didn't really go his way, and we're going to talk about that in greater detail in a moment. So he's kind of off on his own. He's not liking that not only, you know, Moshe and Aharon leading the people, but now there's somebody leading the tribe of Kahat, which is his family. And if, as we'll get into greater detail later, technically he would have been the next in line to take a leadership role, and he was passed over. So he's got a little bit of a problem. And if you like Lord of the Rings, you can identify with this problem. So after he gets a hold of himself and comes up with a plan, he shows up in front of Moses. This attitude's a little bit different. Aharon, Moshe has taught you well, but you're not a Kohen yet. But see, before he gets to that, you know, naturally he's, uh, he's hanging out with the Reubenites. They're all sitting around the campfire and they're like, Well, that didn't go the way we wanted it to, did it? You know, we're sitting around here, just our kilts flapping in the wind, and they're up there in the Mishkan, you know. We were supposed to be the number one kid, you know. We were supposed to, you know, have, a, you know, have a, the temple and all that. And look, he's took it. So now they're standing around and like, I've got an idea. How about we go pick a fight? So, and then after all of this, Yoda shows up. You must unlearn what you have learned. (laughs) Okay, that's the Hollywood version. But I want to talk about the concept of occupying your space. So it was a definition of humility that I heard once that I thought was very, very good. Because I struggle with humility, or rather it struggles with me. I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> it has a problem with me. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I struggle with is the common definition, maybe not necessarily definition, but a common way to express humility is to debase yourself, right? To, uh, you know, to, to make yourself lower 
belittle yourself, things like that. They, those things I'm very good at. But that also is kind of arrogant. Uh, but, we'll, you know, let's be on the scope. But, so, so it was actually in this book. If you have not read it, highly recommend it. Very good. Uh, Everyday Holiness by Alan Morinus. So, Alan Morinus uh, was a college professor. I think he may still be. And in their younger years, I think it was around the 70s or something like that, he decided he wanted to get more into a spiritual world. Now, of course, he was Jewish, but didn't, didn't grow up in a, in a traditional family, really. Uh, so he, of course, like unfortunately most Jews, uh, if they didn't grow up in a, in a home uh, that's you know, pretty solid, um, they tend to go towards Eastern religions. And so they tend to go towards uh, you know, uh, Hinduism, things like that, Buddhism. So, so he was kind of going that way. Well, then he decided, you know what? I am Jewish, so maybe I should look a little bit more into the Jewish thing. So he you know, started digging, and he found Musar. Musar is basically self-improvement, maybe a loose way of interpreting it. So it is actually self-reflection. It is working on yourself, becoming a better person. And so through his studies, he found the definition of humility is occupying your space. The space that God has given you, the roles that he's placed you in, no more and no less. So obviously belittling yourself doesn't work because now you're not occupying your space properly. Also, puffing yourself up and taking on more position than you were given that too is not humility. So, one of the things I always thought as a kid when I'm reading this story about Korah, I'm like, what was this guy thinking? Had he not learned enough going through the exodus from Egypt, seeing all those plagues, which they took about a year to do, then seeing God do all these other amazing things, and yet he still wants to challenge. Do you have anybody in your family like that? Yeah, me too. So, uh, so who was Korah? Now, I didn't know this because I didn't read this part of my Bible because, you know, it had been nailed to the cross. So, but Korah ben Ishar ben Kohat ben Levi. So, he actually, as we'll find, is the cousin of Moshe and Aharon. Um, so Moshe and Aharon are the, of Kohat. Uh, their father was Amram. And Amram was the eldest of the sons of Kohat. And then uh, you had Korah's father, uh, Yizhar. And he was the second. And then you had, I forget who after that, um, but then, then there was somebody we'll talk about here in a moment by the name of Uziel. So basically the way the pecking order usually works uh, is you know, Korah being the eldest of his father's house and the second son of that since the first house of Amram has their leadership within their family. Then the way it would work typically is that the eldest son of the next child of the next son of the next house would then take on another leadership role. So we don't see a whole lot of, you know, fighting back with Korah over Moses and Aaron having their positions. But then something changes. And it's when 
Elizaphan ben Uziel is given the position of the head of the house of Kohat. Of Kohat. And that's when he gets mad. And the reason is because Elizaphan is the eldest son of the youngest in that house. So that's not normally what happens. So he's got a little bit of a problem. Now, Reuben, how many knows anything about the tribe of Reuven, aside from Zelig Moshe ben Hillel? He is the oldest son of the sons of Israel. And what you find is that the children, and I probably have to stay close to this, shouldn't I? Yeah, sorry. Okay, yeah, I got a loud mouth. Yeah, thank you. Um, but the, so the, the other main figures that are mentioned uh, in verse 2 is Dotan, Aviram, and Ali, uh, excuse me, and On. So those are the three main figures, all of them of the tribe of Reuben. And what we find with Reuben, of course, is that their camp was actually close to the Kohathite camp. So you had the way their positions were, they were the closest to them. So while, uh, you know, Gollum is stewing in his camp, he happens over here, the Scotsman in, uh, you know, in the tribe of Reuben wanting to pick a fight, so he figured he'd join in. Um, so they had something in common. So we see how traditionally something like that would work, a structure within the families, a tribal-like setting, which is why I decided to use the Scotsman, because they worked in clans, very similar to the tribes. So anyway, um, but how does a biblical government work? So if we look, it's like uh, you look at uh, Parashat Yitzchol, where, where Jethro comes to Moshe and he says, look, you cannot judge all of these people. There are 3.5 million people. You cannot judge all of them. So he, he suggests something, and then that something becomes, becomes uh, basically how it is established. And we actually find in Numbers 11, 16, 17, and 25, where, uh, where Hashem actually says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to select 70 men of the heads of the houses of Israel, noble men, and I want you to bring them to me. I will increase the uh, power, the authority that I've given you, or I might say your spirit, and I will place it upon them, and they shall be the judges over the house of Israel. So this was the establishment of the what we call Sanhedrin. Uh, of course, it wasn't called that then, um, but uh, it came to be called that in the time of our Master Yeshua. So I like to call this, uh, people, you'll hear in you know, biblical schools and theological seminaries and stuff, that it was a theocracy. But I think a theocracy leaves things a little too vague, because then anybody can come in and, well, I represent God. So I like, the, I like the concept of a representative theocracy, which is where God chooses who represents him. People don't volunteer. God picks them, whether they like it or not. Um, and uh, we actually see something very similar enacted in, in the Acts community. So in Acts 1, when, after the masters ascended and they're going back and he told them to wait up in that room for, uh, for Shavuos, for Shavuot, for Pentecost... Um, that, uh, that the Spirit would come. So while they're waiting, you actually see where uh, they get together, they're praying, and then I think it was Peter stands up and he says, you know what, guys, we need to have somebody replace Judas. 
And so they prayed about it, and it said there were two men that came up in their, through their prayers and stuff. And so they actually prayed about it. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. Now what's interesting is um, the, uh, the other potential was Bar Sabbath, which in Hebrew would be Bar Shabbat. Now, in Jewish literature, there is a figure by the name of Bar Shabbat that lived around that time, follower of Yeshua, and he had an incredible amount of influence uh, on others. So it's pretty cool that another one of Master's followers is actually known within Jewish literature to be a very holy person. But nevertheless, Matthias uh, is selected. So when they're selected and commissioned, they're occupying their space. Nobody bucked for the position. Nobody tried to squeeze themselves in. So we see how essentially governments might typically work within the Chaldean worldview. But then we see how God establishes and therefore see a problem. So Korah was passed over for the leadership by Elizaphon ben Uziel. So the rabbis, a lot of them say, well, there's really no problem with, you know, with Moses and Aaron having their positions, but he was expecting to be tapped out for another one. And when he was passed over, he became upset because he was supposed to be the head of the Kohathite family. So, uh, you know, we talked about who Elizaphon was. So by natural selection, Korah was the next in line, but he didn't occupy his space. <laughs> So then let's go a little bit more into Reuben. So Reuben lost his position as firstborn, and therefore the priest. First he lost it to Joseph. Uh, Genesis 35:22 is where um, he actually loses the position when God, or rather when his father says, "Because you laid upon my bed with my wife, um, you've lost that position." And then it also it reminds us in 1 Corinthians 5.1 that he lost that position for that reason. But here's a potential turn. And this is one thing, if you study the Torah, you'll find this, that there are times when things can reverse. So you, how many of you know who, who Hadassah, Esther, who Esther descended from? She's actually a descendant of King Saul. They were of the royal family. So we also we know that King Saul had uh, made some pretty horrible mistakes um, and uh, lost that kingship. But they nevertheless, one of the things you'll find as you, you know, read through the Tanakh is there it seems to still be this respect for that family. Because they are of the line of Saul. And so you actually see that. But here's an opportunity for redemption in Esther. And she essentially redeems the house by her acts of saving the Jewish people. She occupied her space when her ancestor did not. But Reuben had an opportunity for redemption, I really think. So we have, we have the sin of the golden calf. We have where uh, everyone is doing their thing. Moses goes down, he sees it, and he calls out and said, Whoever is for Hashem, stand with me. And his family rallies behind him. Levi. Not Reuven. And had it been Reuven, guess who would have been the priests? 
They didn't occupy their space. Levi did. So Levi was selected to be the priesthood, selected to be the ministers for Hashem. They became the firstborn. But that did not sit well with Reuben. So it, it appears that Korach may have played on the fact that the tribe was completely replaced and that it was Moses' family, his favorite, just like Yaakov chose Yosef over Reuben. So it's like it's the same pattern. So from his perspective, it's like, here we go again. My family is getting slighted for somebody else's favorite. So Dotan and Abiram and On, along with 250 leaders, mostly of the tribe of Reuben, actually rose up and supported Korah in his rebellion. They did not occupy their space. So how does Korah approach the leadership? And we actually read it earlier if you're here for the Torah service. But it's in uh, Numbers 16, 2 through 3. He says, They arose before Moshe, when men of the children of Israel, 250 of them princes of the assembly, those summoned for meeting men of renown. They gathered together against Moshe and against Aharon and said to them, It is much for you. For the entire assembly, all of them are holy. And Hashem is among them. So why do you exalt yourselves over the congregation of Hashem? Moshe heard. And he slapped him with a stick. He got out the shusher. Have you ever watched the, the movie Home? Highly recommend it. It's hilarious. It's a good kids movie. He, he did not get out the shusher. He fell on his face. And remember, he was the most humble man on earth. He occupied his space. And if somebody accused him of anything otherwise, he immediately searched himself. Please, God, no. He fell on his face and immediately began to intercede for the people because he knew what the outcome would be here. He's seen it before. Actually, so is Korah. So he spoke to Korah and to his entire assembly saying, In the morning, Hashem will make known who is his own, who is holy. And he will bring close to him and to whom he will choose, he will bring close to him. Do this. Now listen to this and see if it sounds familiar. Take for yourselves fire pans, Korah and his entire assembly, and put the fire in them and place incense upon them before Hashem tomorrow. Then the men of whom Hashem will choose, He is the Holy One. There is much to you, sons of Levi. Moshe said to Korah, Listen now, B'nai Levi. Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has segregated you from the assembly of Israel to draw you near to Himself? To perform the service of the tabernacle to Hashem and to stand before the assembly to minister them to them. And he drew you near, you and all of your brethren, the offshoot of Levi, with you, yet you seek priesthood as well. Therefore, you and your entire assembly who are joining together are against Hashem. And as for Aharon, what is he that you cause to protest against him? And then Moshe sent, uh, sent forth to summon Dotan and Aviram, 
But they said, We shall not go up. Is it not enough for you that you have brought us up from the land flowing with milk and honey to cause us to die in the wilderness? Yet you seek to dominate us, even to dominate further. Moreover, you did not bring us to a land flowing with milk and honey, nor did you give us a heritage of field and vineyard. Even if you would put out the eyes of these men, we shall not go up. Sounds pretty Scottish. Even if you put out our eyes, we're still not coming. (laughs) So how does he approach him? I think it's very interesting, and of course, pure coincidence, that our last... Does anybody remember what our last Torah portion ended with? So we'll go ahead and back up just a little bit. It is Numbers 15, 37 through 41. So beginning in verse 37. Vayomer Adonai el Moshe Limor. Daber el Bnei Yisrael ve'atrem lachem ve'asu lachem zitzit. Al kanfei v'gdeichem ledorotam ve'natonu la'al zitzit ha'kanaf p'til t'chelet. V'chaya lachem le'tzitzit u'ri temoto ve'zachartem et kol mitzvot Adonai ve'asitem otram ve'lotatru ve'chahare levavachem ve'chahare enechem. Vasitrem os zonim verahrechem, Lamantis Karu, Varasitem, et Kormitzvot, Vehavetem, Kedoshim Lelohim, Ani Adonai Elahem, Asher Hotseti et Hem, Meerets Mitzrayim, Lihiot Lachem, Lelohim, Ani Adonai Elohem, Emetz. I wanted to do that in Hebrew because I thought it was important to hear, because this is Hashem speaking to Moshe. And he said, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, They are to make for themselves zitzits in the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And they are to place upon the zitzit of each corner a thread of techelet. And it shall constitute zitzit for you that you may see it and remember all of the commandments of Hashem and perform them. And you shall not spy after your heart and after your eyes after which you stray, so that you may remember and perform all of my commandments and be holy to your God. I am Hashem, your God, who has taken you from the land of Mitzrayim to be a God to you. I am Hashem, your God. So right after Hashem gives this command, they say, you took us out of here. You didn't bring us to the land flowing with milk and honey, and you did it just to destroy us. And so doesn't it make sense then that Moshe would say, you are joining together against Hashem. Because he sets you up. But there's, there's something even deeper. So Dr. David knows uh, probably more than most uh, about this. But if you study, um, especially if you study with Dr. David, you'll get more details. But if you study the implements of the tabernacle, you find something. That uh, the, the uh, Kohanim were to take all of the implements before they would break down the tabernacle, they would cover them. So each one had its own cover. And I believe every one of them, one of the covers it had was a techelet garment that would be placed over it. So one, what is techelet? Techelet, um, you'll, you'll hear in the Hebrew Roots movement, they'll, they'll say it's blue. It can be, but the, the Hebrew word for blue is kahol, not techelet. Techelet is not a color. Techelet is actually a particular type of 
of fabric, dyed to a particular type of fabric. So it's techelet. Techelet is wool dyed with a snail's ink gland to make blue. So when you hear techelet, that's what it's talking about. It's actually talking about wool thread or a wool garment dyed with a particular substance. So it can't be any other substance. Otherwise, it wouldn't be techelet. So there are two different uh, types of techelet that are um, used today. One is actually from a snail. One is from a squid. And both of them pass the laws of the Talmud until Mashiach comes and tells us which one it actually is. We already have theories. So, but why is this important? So if you read in the Midrash, um, Korach does something interesting. He comes to Moshe and he says, Moshe, got a question for you. If a garment is made entirely of techelet, do I have to still put a blue thread on the corners? Moshe says, of course. That's what the Torah says. Ah, you err. That is silly. The entire garment is techelet. There is no need for it to be sanctified by a single thread. Kind of scary. Because the Torah says that you're to make this garment and you're to affix. And he says we don't have to. But there's something deeper to what he's saying. It's not so much about the garment. He's saying something else and we just read it. We're all holy. Not just a single thread. Basically, he's saying, we don't need you. We have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God rests on all of Israel. We do not need a leader. The entire garment is holy. Now, let's look at a little bit about what that, uh, that tehelet garment that was placed over those implements, how it worked. So in Numbers 4, we'll go ahead and turn there real quick. Numbers 4, we actually hear the obligations and the job of the Kohatite family. So of Korah's family. See, it is beginning in verse, I believe it's verse 4, was it? So the Kohathite family, this, beginning in verse 4, Numbers 4, this is the work of the sons of Kohat in the tent of meeting, the most holy. Aaron and his sons shall come to them uh, when the camp journeys, and they are to take down the partitions, the screens, the covers, and we'll skip because they cover all of this stuff. They cover them with turquoise wool, as Rashi is often translated. Obviously, it's not so clear as to be blue, or you wouldn't hear some of them say turquoise or even violet. Um, but uh, they put these covers over them. And this is what the Kohanim, the priesthood, the high priesthood is supposed to do. Uh, including the golden altar, uh, the menorah, all of the other utensils are to be covered in this turquoise wool. Um, and then also some of them, I think, I don't think all of them, but some of them have the tachash hide as well. But what happens is after the priesthood does this, and so it says in verse 15, Aharon and his son shall finish covering the holy and all of the utensils of the holy when the camp journeys. And after that, the sons of Korah shall, or rather not Korah, Kohat, uh, shall come to carry so that they not touch the sanctuary and die. These are the burdens of the sons of Kohat. So Moshe is saying, look, you guys are doing something nobody else can do. You can carry the Ark of the Covenant. So it was the sons of Kohat that carried the Ark of the Covenant when it journeyed. So Korah quite possibly could have been one of the ones actually carrying 
the ark, which is one of the few people in the world that can come anywhere near it. So Moshe's asking, he said, is this not enough for you? God has selected you to do something incredible. Is that not enough for you? But the question still comes back to, what about the tachash skin? Why is that so important? Or that tachash garment? So it seems like, uh, actually, if you look in the Hebrew, the Hebrew actually says that when, the, when they're dismantling, the word essentially uh, of that process of dismantling actually means to swallow up. See where I'm going? But you have to put the tachash, or the tachash skins, you have to put the tachelet, you have to put those garments on those implements for them to be able to be transported. That's what happened with David when he brought the ark on the wagon. It cannot be moved unless it's covered with those particular items. Otherwise, its status has not changed. And so that's something as you study Judaism, you learn something about status. And that status changes. And when there are changes in status, responsibilities also change or availability to do this, that, or the other. So, so in order for any of these implements to be moved out of the tabernacle, they have to be covered. Now, think about this for a minute. Maybe from the perspective of Korah and his family, they're actually seeing that it's this tehelet that allows them to touch the holy items. Somehow it renders them able to touch them, where normally they could not. It must be holy. Let's put all of these on our people and make them all holy. So maybe he meant well. The problem is, is he changed the status of his own people. So he argued that there was no need for representation, a single thread, because the entire garment was holy and we all have the Spirit. But was his argument occupying his space? Can you argue anything and operate outside of your space or operate within? The answer is yes, you can. But there are two different types of arguments. So Rabbi Sachs um, actually said that, you know, he was discussing argument for the sake of heaven. I think it was Rabbi Salanter that he borrowed this from. So there is argument for the sake of heaven. And so what does that look like? Hillel and Shammai. Hillel and Shammai were two, uh, two men, very godly men, loved to Shem, loved the Jewish people. And their strife was for holiness. So when they entered into an argument, it was for the sake of truth. It was so that truth would come out, not so that I win. That's what, that wasn't the attitude. The attitude was, the Torah requires us to do something. What does that look like? We want to love Hashem. We want to walk out His ways. But what does that look like? And when they had differing opinions, let's hash this out. I may be right. You might be right. But it's, about, it's not about who's right. It's about what's right. And that was the source of their arguments. But Korah had an entirely different position. He wanted position. And rebels often say that they don't want or even need leadership. However, their only desire is to unseat that leadership and take its place. So it's, it never works that way. You never have a rebellion that comes out and says, All right, we're leaderless. Let's all have fun, be free in the Lord. It doesn't work that way. Somebody fills that gap, and it's usually worse than the person who uh, had it before, with the exception of our nation. Definitely.
we actually came into that much better off than most rebellions, uh, like the French Revolution, for instance. It was terrible. But here's something interesting. So I'm going to pull out a very, very intriguing passage out of the uh, Zohar, which is a commentary on the Torah. <clears throat> okay, so it says, you know, this is something too in the in the Hebrew uh, in the Hebrew vernacular. It says something that's a little weird. It says, uh, what does it say? V'kach Korah, I think is what it says, which is weird because it doesn't say what he took. So V'kach is to take. So it says, and Korah took, or took Korah, but it doesn't say what he took. So the question is, what did he take? Because in order for the Hebrew to typically work, you would need to know what it was he was taking. But it seems to leave that wide open. Or does it? So the sages say he took himself. So it says, what did he take? He took an evil counsel for himself. If one runs after that which is not his, it flies from him. And what is more, he loses his own as well. So Korah pursued that which was not his, and he lost his own without obtaining the other. Korah quarreled with peace, and he who quarrels with peace quarrels with the Holy One, because the Holy One is called peace, and the Torah is also peace, as it is written, for all her paths are peace. Korah tried to upset peace on high and below, and therefore he was punished both on high and below. He changed the status of his family to where they were no longer occupying the space that they were supposed to. They, it seems like they used um, a, a something that's to be done to transport the temple, to transport them out of their position as the Kohathite family, to try to seize the, uh, the, the, the high priesthood, and for Reuben to also become part of the priesthood. They changed their status. And... Just like the tabernacle, when its status is changed, it's swallowed up into the common world so that it can be moved. They were swallowed up into the grave. Be very careful what you put on. They did not occupy their space. And so what happens, you know, it's like, a, like you've heard it said, you know, our relationship isn't big enough for your ego. You know, that's, that's exactly right. And the camp could not occupy. They could not occupy the space they were trying to occupy. And Israel have a future. So the question is, and we mentioned it uh, a minute ago, why the censors? Why did Moses tell them to bring censors? Anybody remember in Numbers 9, Nadav and Avihu? What did they do when the temple was ordained, when it was commissioned? They didn't occupy their space. And, I, and I, I, I want to caution. I think people tend to think that what they did was with ill intent. And I really don't believe that. I really truly believe that Nadav and Avihu wanted to love Hashem. But we are to do it as He prescribes. We don't understand why God wants certain things to be done. Just like a child doesn't understand why they can or cannot do certain things. But the consequences can be pretty devastating. And we may not see that. But if we don't walk in Hashem's ways, we find those consequences uh, can meet us and, and we'd be unpleasantly surprised. But they offered unsanctioned offerings. 
And Moshe was trying to warn them that they were headed down a similar end. I don't believe it was the same path, but it definitely had a similar consequence. They didn't occupy their space. And we already talked about why the ground swallowed them up. It did exactly what they wanted. They just didn't realize what they wanted. They wanted to be holy and set apart. But the problem is, is covering yourself with the item that makes you common so that you can be transported from one place to another has an, alter, has an alternate ending that they didn't expect. But it wasn't the garment that did it. It was the attitude. It was the same. As a man thinks, so is he. So people say, you know, don't judge me by the clothes I wear. Actually, your clothes tell you a lot about you. Tell a lot of people a lot about you. But they didn't occupy their space. And why was the punishment so harsh? So last night, I was at work, working late, trying to get done, trying to get caught up. And I get a a call from my wife. And of course, she usually does not call me at work, so immediately I am scared. So I texted her because I was actually on the phone. And uh, I was like, is everything okay? She sent me a picture. My son had taken wire that he found somewhere, pulled the safety cap off of the plug, and proceeded to stick it into both prongs. Tripped the breaker, didn't shock him, which I'm still trying to figure out, aside from Nescadol, a great miracle that it didn't touch him. Does my son know what will happen? Not a clue. So I, I had to, you know, I had a, felt like an eternity getting home, even though it only takes about 15 minutes, trying to think, how do I deal with this? He cannot do this again. And he does stuff like that all the time. So it's just like, I, I don't know what to do. So the punishment was harsh. He got his tail lit up like a Hanukkah tree. <laughs> does he think it's fair? Absolutely not. Nothing happened. It was a cool light work show and all the lights went out. That's cool. Let's do it again. You know? Did it seem fair to him? No, not at all. It didn't seem fair. But I know the outcome. Hashem knows the outcome. So we may look at we may look at the situation of Korah and say, man, that was harsh. The ground swallow him up. But we don't understand if that had been allowed to continue what the outcome would have been. These are God's people, His holy nation that were set apart to be a light to the rest of the nations. And if they had that kind of rebellion going on, what is going to happen? What is the outcome? Hilul Hashem, desecrating the name. And we don't understand the outcome. The punishment was probably far less severe than what the outcome would have been had it been allowed to continue. These men tried to occupy the space that they claimed was too much for Moshe and Aharon. And they were swallowed up instead because it was too much for them. This is why the the sages speak so harshly against rebellion. And that's why you see in the Talmud why it says, Beware, my son, the breaking of the words of the sages. For the Torah has many provisions within it laws that have various degrees of punishment. But the one who rebels against the sages is worthy of death. That sounds harsh. But what are they talking about? So one of the commentators on the Talmud, he says, he says it's simple. When somebody transgresses the Torah, they usually do so by mistake. It's a, it's a lapse in judgment. 
you know, a, a, an overcoming of the flesh, if you will. But someone who rebels against the sages, it's entirely different. Their intent is to be against them to begin with. It has nothing to do with a lapse in judgment. It is intentional. And therefore, and he says further, that punishment is done by the heavenly court. No man passes judgment on that man for that. And we see this with Moshe and Korah. Why do the sages speak so harshly of rebellion? I'll just read this and then we'll go ahead and wrap up. So, um, if you don't have this, highly recommend it. Depths of the Torah. He says something very interesting I think makes a lot of sense, especially in, on our situation today. Korah strategy. 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 Trying to get tragedy and strategy put in there somehow together. So Korah and his followers employed the same basic strategy. They called for homogenization. Saying that Aharon and Moshe, or rather to them, all of the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of Hashem? According to Korah, there was no difference between priests and Levites. They were all holy like one man. They employed castigation by speaking against Moshe and Aharon, accusing them of deceit, greed, and corruption. Finally, they practiced replacement theology by surpassing the priestly role and offering incense in the sanctuary. Things have not improved much in our modern world. Many teachers, especially the Hebrew Roots movement, follow the same strategy. They begin by making a case for theological homogenization. Jewish identity is irrelevant because the Messiah, or because in Messiah we're all one new man and all believers are equally bound to observe the whole Torah without distinction between Jew and Gentile. They castigate the Jewish people by misrepresenting the Torah and following, or rather for, misrepresenting the Torah and following rabbinic rulings, man-made traditions, oral law, and traditions of men. They introduce new readings of the Torah based on their own opinions and explain that God really meant what rather what God really meant by dis, by uh, dismissing the wisdom and the tradition of Judaism. Finally, they replace the Jewish people by claiming Gentile believers are in fact Israel too. They challenged uh, they uh, when challenged they tellingly retort, "You are saying I'm a second class citizen." So what's wrong with being a second-class citizen? What's wrong in not in being a Levite? I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of wickedness, Psalm 84.10. Sometimes we may not like the status that we may have. Um, sometimes we may not like the leadership that's before us. But Hashem established it. He knows what He's doing. Just like King David said, I dare not touch Mashiach. Who's he talking about? Saul. I dare not touch Mashiach. He is Mashiach. He is Messiah. I dare not touch him. Even though David knew he was going to be king, he wasn't king yet. And he occupied his space by doing what Hashem commanded him to do, honoring his king, who was a very wicked man that sought his own death. Now, a quick question. What happened to On? We talked about earlier, there were three men had a good wife. Three men. There was Dotan, Aviram, On. But you only see On mentioned at the beginning. Never see him after that. Why? Well, all of those man-made traditions teach us something yet again. And it says that uh, he had a righteous wife. His wife saw what was happening. 
And she stopped him. She encouraged him not to take part in it. And she said, listen, I'll, I'll distract him for you. So she sits outside of her tent while he's asleep. She gave him something to drink just in case he never came to his senses. Um, she stood outside and she just took her hair out of its covering. And so when Dotan and Aviram came by to go get him, whoop, oh, lads, she's naked, let's go. <laughs> and thus, he never came to it. And so I, that reminds me of something that Rav Shaul said in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 beginning in verse 14. So I think, I think it's very interesting. This just came to mind as I was reading that Midrash. Uh, beginning in verse uh, 14. So he says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. And then if we skip down to verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So we already talked about everyday holiness. We already talked about the occupying your space is finding the role that Hashem has positioned for you. We use the example of the priesthood, of course. But even Gentile inclusion, and even as a Jew, what roles can you fulfill within the Jewish community? As a Jew, you can't go into the tabernacle beyond the court of the, of the women, actually, unless you're a Levite or a Kohen. And a Kohen, only one Kohen can go into the Holy of Holies. There's distinction. And that is how a body functions. Not everybody can be the head. Not everybody can be the foot. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul says, he says, you know, um, an ear can't say, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a foot. That's foolish. We're all part of that same body. We're all the part of the body of Messiah, but we have our roles, different obligations, different things that we're supposed to do to build the community of Messiah, to build up that body. So let us each individually occupy the space that God has given us. And as we come together as one body of Messiah, we will truly speed His coming. Because imagine if we all occupied our space, what we could do. And just uh, in closing, uh, I just learned today is Rebbe Schneerson, his yard site. You want to talk about somebody who occupied his space. I encourage you to read how he impacted people, how he changed lives for generations to come because he occupied his space. Shabbat Shalom. We hope you enjoyed the weekly teaching. We'd love to hear from you with a comment, a prayer request, or questions you might have. We believe the mission and message of Messianic Judaism is something the world needs now. If you enjoy these teachings, would you consider financially supporting the work of Nachamu Ami by visiting our website at www.makinmessianic.com and clicking the Give Online button in the upper right corner. Thank you again for listening.